If you will all turn with me to Psalm 13, we will hear the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and we thank you for the gift of your word that you've given to us um, for today. And we ask that you would inspire it in our hearing and that you would, uh, that the Holy Spirit would help us to enlighten our hearts and minds and help us to understand the truth that you have written down for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think we have all at times had the feeling of, that is portrayed in this psalm, the feeling that God has abandoned us and that God's enemies or our enemies seem to be advancing much more than we would think they're supposed to. There are events that shock us and, and rock our world, but there are also events that cause us to lament on a more personal level. Perhaps the most recent large-scale expression of rocking our world would be what happened uh, a couple mo- a month ago or so at, in Texas at the elementary school. Um, that the, the parents and community in Texas would have similar feelings as the psalmist at the beginning. How long, O oh Lord, how long do we have to deal with things like this happening? Nineteen fourth graders died. But I don't think many of us necessarily felt that with them, in, at, at least at the same level. But we have other things that affect us as well, such as maybe uh, an unexpected death or loss of a loved one or uh, personal uh, struggles or family strife, or even a terminal diagnosis that shows us how frail life really is. There are many different times, I think, that a Christian can feel this way, that God, and may feel that God has abandoned them. These feelings are real. I don't think they're just written down in this psalm and never experienced by us. At least, I've experienced them in my life. In these times, the timely theological word of, well, it's all part of God's plan, or God is in control, while they are true and we know they're true, seem to sometimes deepen the sting of the pain. Whenever tragedy happens to us, our our hearts cry within us, asking how a good God could have allowed this to happen to us. Does he even care? The psalmist here is in that valley of intense anguish of soul and wondering how God could allow something to happen to him as it had. But he shows us how to deal with this feeling in a godly way. He shows us that even in the midst of absolute anguish, we as believers can have confidence and trust in God even when his situation did not improve. He doesn't go about this through telling a theological truism 
or stating that God is in control or quoting a verse like Romans 8.28, all things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But rather, he expresses his feelings in a very raw way in the psalm. And he, David responds to suffering by taking us through the process of faith, struggling with the different feelings that he does that God has abandoned him and that he is suffering. And though David's, and through David's pain, he shows us a flower of faith blossoming in his heart in the very midst of suffering. In this psalm, the beautiful flower develops from a tiny seed of faith in his question of God, into a bud of faith, into his prayer to God, and finally into the flower of faith through his blessed assurance. In this organic development, David expresses his raw feelings to God in the storms of his heart and ends with the calm assurance that comes from faith in God and his love for him. This process is one that every believer is able to go through, and it helps us to know how to handle these intense times of suffering. But at the beginning of the psalm, we don't see the whole flower. David is surrounded in stormy and his stormy life and is wailing out to God in the midst of his distress. He is asking God the burning question, "How long, O Lord?" And this question itself reveals the seed of faith hidden amidst the dark storms of his heart. So our first point today is the seed of faith, the burning question. The seed of faith is when the psalmist begins by peppering God with questions out uh, all beginning with how long. So if you look with me at verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Can't you feel the sense of raw emotion that the psalmist begins with? He's just pouring his heart out to God and he feels like, God, who he feels like is not there. I think all of us have been in this moment, haven't you? I know I have. When all you can do is look at your situation and ask God how long it will be until it changes, it makes me wonder what David was going through to make him feel this way, like what his circumstances, what the historical circumstances are. And I wish I could tell, I wish I could tell you what... Uh, David was going through to do this, but uh, the truth is, we don't know for sure. All we know is at the beginning that it's a psalm of David, and that's all the historical context we're given. There are things we know from the psalm. We know that David was having intense sufferings, and his enemies seemed to be victorious over him, possibly even to the point of David dying. And we also know that the suffering was happening for a prolonged period of time, enough for him to ask how long repeatedly. But that's all we know. And there are many circumstances in David's life that could have been the occasion to write this psalm. It, maybe it has to do with uh, family strife and wondering how long this must continue because David had to deal with his son Absalom making a coup. Maybe it has to do with the enemy, an enemy constantly seeming to persecute us and make us pay. David ran from Saul for many, many years while he was waiting to become king. Or maybe it has to do with facing death itself. Some people suggest that this was David wrote this on his deathbed. Or, because of how general the psalm is, 
Maybe it applies to all of those circumstances. I think it's very important to consider that while this was written by David, it was eventually given to be put in the Psalter as a worship, to be used for worship in the temple. The Psalms were uh, the people of Israel's hymn book, which was inspired by God and contained all of their songs for worship. Regardless of the specific original circumstances that David had while he wrote this psalm, it has become a general cry for believers uh, against their enemies and suffering. Because it was inspired by God as a worship song, through this, God is instructing us to come to him in this way when we have these feelings. Because of the general nature of the psalm, I think it can be a very big comfort for us as we have different sufferings in this life that we can look to this psalm for help in. So regardless of what situation he was facing, what was he feeling? What do we see about how he was feeling in the first two verses? Um, what, what, in the face of the circumstances David is facing, whatever those are specifically, we can see that David is feeling great anguish. He says he feels like God has forgotten him, has hidden his face from him, that he must take counsel by himself and that his enemy triumphs over him. We can identify, I think, with David on each of these points. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, notes that it's not just that he's crying out to God, but it almost seems like he's wailing out to God and just crying from the depths of his soul. He is in the depths of anguish, as all humans are at times. But what does it mean that David is saying that he's in this pits of despair? I think the first two verses give us four questions, and each of those gives us a little piece of what David is saying he's feeling. The first verse, the first question in verse 1 is, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? When David says this, he's saying that God has forgotten him. It's not necessarily saying that the omniscient God has actually put him mentally out of his mind. That's not possible. But in the Bible, when we see the word remember or forget, it has to do with a relational term. And so remembering a certain individual speaks of keeping his promises to that individual. We can see an example of this when uh, Noah was, when the flood had ended, God remembered Noah and stopped the flood. So he was keeping his promise to Noah to save him. And so then in this context, when David is afraid that God is forgetting him, He's not saying that God has mentally left him out of his mind. He's saying that God is uh, failing to keep his promises to him. And that's what that means. And he feels like God has forgotten the promises that he made to him. The second question in verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? When David says that God has hidden his face from him, it's another example of figurative language. When what the God's face shining on a person means is showing him favor and grace. It's as if God is smiling at a person and things are going well in life. David is enjoying God's extra special blessing, but now that David, that God is hiding his face, or it feels like God is hiding his face from David, David is no longer enjoying that, and it feels like he's lost the smile of God. So when David says that he's hidden his face from him, He means that God has denied him favor as if God has withdrawn his smile and denied him blessings. The first question in verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? When he speaks of taking counsel in his soul and putting sorrow in his heart daily, it means that he's tried and failed to fix his own situation. 
because he feels like God is silent and not helping him. He feels like he has to do it on his own, but even when he tries to do it on his own, it doesn't work. He can't get out of it. He can't counsel himself and figure out how to get out of his situation. And his suffering is so intense that he has sorrow in his heart daily, all day long. The final question that helps us to see how David is feeling is, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David is speaking of his enemy being exalted over him, and it's clear this enemy, who is an enemy of David, is also an enemy of God. Because in this whole psalm, we don't see anything about David's personal sin. And so because David is being obedient to God in this time, because other times we see that David uh, repents of his sin, but it's not here. So um, it's an enemy of God. And in some way, we don't know exactly who the enemy is, but we know that David is being triumphed over by that enemy. And so because he is innocent, this enemy of David is an enemy of God, and he's, when he's seeking to exalt himself over David, he's also seeking to himself, exalt himself over God and David's God as well. So in summary, from these first two verses, we see David feels um, defeated by an ungodly enemy, like he's unable to help himself, like the God who's supposed to defend him is, has seemingly failed to keep his promises and remove his gracious favor from David. These are some serious feelings. And I think there are some times in our lives that we may feel the same way. When we feel like everything's going wrong and God, who has our help, seems to not be keeping his promises and seems to be, have removed his face from us and removed grace from us. And these feelings can come through a variety of unfortunate circumstances. I'm sure you can think of some. And in these times, like David, we can cry out to God, like David did, How long, O Lord? But even within this cry, as I said before, lies the seed of faith. But you may ask me, how is this the result of faith? Now, of course, as Christians, we know that God is faithful in our heads, and we know that he never breaks his promises, and that because of Christ, his favor is bent towards us and cannot be separated from us. But we don't always feel like this is true. So how are these feelings of utter abandonment by God the result of faith? How can I even suggest that this, in this verse, contain the seed of faith? I think this is the most important point of this section, and it's very easily missed about how this reveals David's faith in a seed form. Let me ask it to you like this. If David believed that God had completely abandoned him, like he said, rejected his promises to him, like he said, and, remove, and completely removed his favor from him, why did David bother crying out to God and expressing his feelings in the first place? If this God was so utterly untrustworthy, why waste the breath crying out to him? The great theologian and expositor John Calvin beautifully said it this way. When he saw, when David saw not a single ray of good hope to whatever quarter he turned, so far as human reason could judge, constrained by grief, he cries out to God that God did not regard him. And yet by this very complaint, he gives evidence that faith enabled him to rise higher and to conclude contrary to the judgment of the flesh 
that his welfare was secure in the hand of God. Had it been otherwise, how could he have directed his groanings and his prayers to him? Do you hear how in the depths of despair, when he cried out about God abandoning him, David doesn't ultimately believe that he's completely abandoned? Isn't that awesome? There are two ways that he shows this, as I've kind of said before. First, the question of how long is immensely different than the question of will you ever. He never asks if God will ever turn his face back to David, but rather when will God turn his face back. And secondly, like Calvin suggested, the very fact that he's crying out to God shows that he still believes through faith that God is there and hearing his prayer, even though circumstances suggest differently. So David feels abandoned and rejected, even though he wasn't, and by faith he knows that he wasn't. And those of us who have the Holy Spirit in us, our hearts cry out to God at times as well, why do you do this, Lord? Or how long, O Lord? And these questions are not that of an unbeliever who would deny God's justice and his presence and just expect things to go wrong, but of a believer who knows by faith that God is just and he is present, even when circumstances suggest that he has taken a vacation. So when your heart cries this question and all hope seems lost, take comfort in the fact that this very question you ask suggests that there is a seed of faith that the Holy Spirit will continue to grow in your heart. Before we move on to the next section, I want to talk to you a little bit about how this uh, also shows Christ. How does Christ see this? We see that Jesus also felt abandoned by God in his intense suffering. He was completely innocent of all sin, and yet his enemies were exalted over him to the point of death. He died the death that you and I deserve. Throughout the book of Isaiah, it's clear that Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. Yet Christ, as suffering, not only felt that his father had abandoned him, but actually was abandoned by God on the cross because of, another's, because of other people's sins. On the cross, he cried out in both Matthew and Mark, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his trial of Gethsemane and Calvary, Christ understands sorrows and abandonment even more than David did when he was writing this psalm. So this section could clearly be a lament that he could cry out to God as well. And he did cry a different lament to God when he was on the cross. So up to this point in the psalm, David has been struggling with and lamenting his position to God. He has been detailing his problem in a way that expresses raw emotion. But even though he feels that God has abandoned him, because he's crying out to God and using the words, how long rather than will you ever, he knows God is there and he knows God will deliver him by his faith, even though he doesn't see or feel like God is there. And this hidden seed of faith comes to further fruition in the psalm as it develops into the flower of assurance. The seed of faith, then, in the next section, moves in on to the bud of prayer, the bud of faith in his prayer. After expressing his raw emotion to God, he makes his passionate plea to God to deliver him. So the next section of the psalm is the believer's prayer to God. As Calvin suggested in the quote from earlier, David continues to even further reveal his hidden faith in the fact 
that not only does it bemoan his circumstances to God, but he cries out to God to fix them. In the next section, he gives his prayer, verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In this prayer, he gives three requests and three motivations for that request to God. So the three requests that he gives makes of God are in the first verse and a half, and it's fairly simple. David asks God that he would do three things, consider, answer, and light up my eyes. This is, there is a very interesting connection, I think, between all of these requests and how David has expressed his feelings in the previous section. So if you look with me at the first one, uh, he, the first request David makes of God in verse 3, he says, consider, and it gives a kind of idea of look at me or something like that. David feels like God has turned his face away, and so he's asking God to look at him again and to see him and to consider his plight and to come back. The second request David makes of God in verse 3, he asks God to answer me. And it's clear from the fact that David had to take counsel in his soul that he feels like God is silent. He's not just asking God to, he's also not just asking God to answer his prayer as in tell me why this is happening, but also to fix his situation and help him. And because he needs to take counsel in his soul, he doesn't feel like God is doing that, and so he's asking God to do that. The final request God makes of David in verse 4 is he asks God to light up my eyes. Now, this is, sounds kind of weird, and you might not exactly know uh, what it's talking about, and I think it takes some uh, unpacking a little bit, because when I first read this, I would have expected, as most probably Western people would have, we think of enlightenment as gaining of knowledge. And so when you say, light up my eyes, you might expect it was a figurative language for something to the effect of, uh, help me understand why this is happening uh, and why, why this is happening. Uh, but I don't think in context and with what, what it means in Hebrew that it means that. The eyes were considered to be lamps to the soul, and light eyes were considered to be um, signals of life and vitality, whereas dim eyes were considered to be uh, signs of closeness to death. Uh, probably the, the easy example of this would be in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan is fighting with the Philistines, and he has a long day of war, and his eyes are growing dim, and he's growing weak, and then he eats honey, and then his eyes were brightened, and his vitality and life returned. And so, in this thing, David is sitting at the brink of death, and he prays that God would return the vitality of his life to him. And this is also further confirmed in the fact that the very next line after, light up my eyes, says, lest I sleep the sleep of death, essentially, lest I die. So essentially, what that's saying is, help me not to die. And this is a reversal of the fact that the enemy was exalted over him in the previous section, almost even to the point of death. And so he, said, he feels like the enemy is exalted over him to the point of death, and then he asks God, light up my eyes, please, and save me from that death. We can also pray this way. That though we know what we are feeling is incorrect, we cry out to God and ask him to change what we feel is happening. We ask him to consider us, give us an answer, and not allow us to die. 
All these things are common prayers of one who is suffering. The next three lines of this stanza uh, give us, give, he gives, David gives God some motivations for why he should do what he suggested. And they come in the form of basically what will happen if you don't intervene. So the first one is lest I die, lest my enemies declare the victory, and the third one is lest my foes rejoice. Because of these three reasons, they're, they're, very, they're very similar to one another, and they're kind of all wrapped up together. Uh, his death would be the cause of both the enemy declaring the victory and the foes rejoicing in his defeat. Uh, Alan Ross, in his commentary, made an interesting note um, that the word for rejoice, uh, when it's talking about rejoicing, his enemies rejoicing, uh, it's, it means literally an exuberant, uh, exuberant celebratory event, but sometimes it can have the connotation of a worship service, so that essentially these enemies were rejoicing and worshiping their gods that they had defeated, uh, David and his God. But whether that is the case or not, either way, as I said earlier, these enemies would be enemies of David and enemies of God. And so if God were to allow David to be defeated, allow his enemy to become prideful about his victory and his foes to rejoice, then God is also being shamed. His honor is that he will defend his people against their enemies, and if God fails to defend David, then his honor is on the line. So David is not just calling for vindication for himself and saying, this isn't right, this is happening to me, please keep this from happening to me, but he's also saying, don't let my enemies make a fool out of me by declaring victory, but also don't let them hold the delusion that they've defeated you with me. David doesn't want to die. But he also doesn't want his enemies to be able to claim that he's prevailed over David and over God, or his foes to rejoice at his downfall. Overall, I think this prayer is fairly clear and doesn't require a ton more explanation. But he prays for a reversal of the things, of all the things that he's feeling and, and wails to God about in the previous section. And we see his faith growing in the fact that he believes enough about God to pray to him. But we still see and hear the pain very clearly in his prayer. So also with us, when we cry out to God and we are in pain, and we often ask him to reverse our feelings and show himself to be near to us when we don't feel like he is. This also shows the budding faith because it shows that we believe enough about him to pray to him. This also is a part of Christ's story of suffering as well. The prayer of David is clearly part of Christ's suffering. In fact, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed that the cup of suffering would pass away from him. He prayed fervently, so fervently that he sweated drops of blood. He prayed that God would allow this to pass him by because he knew the trial he was about to face. And when Christ was on the cross suffering, he also cried out to God, as I alluded to earlier. It's clear that not only was Christ someone acquainted with suffering and grief, but in the midst of suffering, he also cried out to God. Most importantly, and we'll see this in a little bit, the resp his response after the prayer is one that matches what David had as well, and we'll see that in the next section. So while we saw the seed of faith and the fact that David was expressing emotion to God, then the bud of faith in David's prayer, now we see the full flower of faith of his assurance. His faith was seen implicitly in the rest of the psalm. But now, in the final two verses, it comes explicit. 
and is shown very clearly. His stormy heart has been calmed and drawn to a peaceful resolution. That flower of faith has blossomed into the blessed assurance that comes from faith. And that is our final point tonight. After his prayer, David is at peace. He is calmed in the midst of the storm. He declares his trust of God in this way, in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. There are several scholars who have suggested that because of this drastic shift in tone between verses 4 and verse 5, there must have been some gap of time that 1 through 4 were written and 5 through 6 were written. They suggest that in this time, uh, either his circumstances started to get better or maybe there was just a prophet who came and gave him an oracle of deliverance that would happen eventually. But I don't think there's any indication of that in the text. And placing this gap, I think, short circuits everything this whole psalm and everything that I've been saying. As we've been saying this whole sermon, throughout the psalm, the flower of faith is developing even in the midst of suffering. But if you put a gap between verse 4 and 5, you destroy that. This whole psalm has been building to this resolution, and David's faith has become more and more clear throughout the psalm. So the only fitting conclusion for this psalm is his expression of confidence in the Lord. Calvin was very clear that part of the beauty of this aspect of the psalm was the fact that David had not yet received the benefits of his prayer, but he responded in faith as if he had. What David says he will do here reverses how he was previously feeling. He gives three things that show his refreshed confidence in the Lord. He will trust God's steadfast love. His heart will rejoice in his deliverance, and he will sing to the Lord. As I've said, uh, and it's important to show how several reversals in David's feeling at each of these points. Each of these things that David is choosing to do show a change in mindset between his previous situation at the beginning of the psalm. So first, he says that he would trust in God's steadfast love. The Hebrew word here refers to God's loyal love that he displays to his children By upholding his promises. Notice David is essentially saying that he trusts that God would uphold his promises to him even when it doesn't look like that. So why is that significant? Because at the beginning of the psalm, David claims that God has forgotten him, which I told you was in terms of his forgetting his promises and failing to keep his promises. Yet at the end of the psalm, David is choosing to trust in God's loyal promise-keeping love. So in the beginning, he claims that God is not keeping his promises, yet at the end, he says that he trusts in God's loyal love to keep his promises. The second thing he says is that his heart would rejoice in his deliverance or his salvation. Notice at the beginning, there was sorrow in his heart daily or all the day. So he has moved from having sorrow in his heart to joy in his heart because of the deliverance God will give him. Some have suggested that David is declaring here that when his deliverance comes, he will have joy in his heart, though he doesn't have it now. But I think that kind of misses the point of the text. Well, it's true that his full joy will come at his deliverance because of his trust and expectation that that deliverance will happen, he has a portion of that joy now. 
How can David be saying that he will have joy in the future when God does deliver him, and yet in the present not have any joy in the expectation of that deliverance? I don't think that's possible. Though David's joy may be made complete when deliverance comes, he has hope in the expectation of deliverance and joy in that knowledge of that trust. The final thing David says he would do is he would sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with him. And dealing bountifully with me refers only to gracious behavior. It's not something that ever speaks of the just reward for behavior. So again, notice that David is saying that God has essentially dealt graciously with him as opposed to earlier when God hid his face from David, he had withdrawn his grace and favor. I think this gracious dealing, uh, dealing bountifully, can have two senses. In the first, David, it is true that God can speak of how David, uh, David can speak of how God has dealt faithfully and graciously with him in the past. But in faith, David is also saying that God will turn around his current situation by dealing bountifully with him about the current situation as he has in the past. Through the eyes of faith, David looks forward to the future deliverance of, from his enemies and treats it as if this has already happened. Calvin said, David, in hastening with promptitude of soul to sing of God's benefits before he had received them, places the deliverance which was then apparently at a distance, immediately before his eyes. So in each of the states of mind, at the beginning of the psalm that we talked about, are all reversed by the end. While David felt like God was distant, by faith he recognized that God was not. While David felt like God had broken his promises to him, by faith he chose to trust in God's promise-keeping love. While he felt like God had withheld his favor, he chose to sing to the Lord because he had dealt graciously with him in the past and would deal graciously with him again in the future. While he felt like, while he, his heart was filled with sorrow daily, by faith, he chose to fill his heart with joy because of God's deliverance that would come. While there are feelings that come with suffering, ultimately, our faith needs to trump our feelings so that we know what is true, so we recognize what is true about God by faith rather than getting slumped down in what we feel God is doing in the moment. Let me say that again. While there are feelings that come with suffering, ultimately our faith needs to trump our feelings so that we recognize what is true about God by faith, rather than getting slumped down in what we feel God is doing in the moment. Christ also helps us to see this response as well as the faithful sufferer. Christ embodies his faithful response to suffering because in his prayer to Gethsemane, he said, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, Christ partook of his sufferings willingly, and though he could have called down angels to rescue him from death, he went through with them that God's salvation might be accomplished. For us, our confidence in God's loyal love can be stronger than that of David's because we know the whole story. We know Christ is the one who died on the cross to fulfill that faithful love. It was because of God's loyal love to his, those who were his children that he sent Christ to die. Without Christ's death, there would be no steadfast love of God. And because we know of this depth of God's love, 
we can trust in God's love to an even deeper extent than David. Even when bad things are happening, we can see how terrible things happen to Christ, and God did not spare his own son from suffering that we might be saved. Because we see the steadfast love of God, we can trust that God has a plan even when we don't see it, just like David didn't see it either. Christ is the fullest expression of this steadfast love, so we can trust in this steadfast love, but also uh, that he showed to us on the cross. But inevitably, when we fail to trust God as we should, because we're only human, right? The great thing about what Christ did on the cross is that Christ was faithful for us. So he was faithful to the point of death. So then Christ's faithfulness gets to cover our unfaithfulness, even when we fail. And so when God looks at us, he sees Christ's faithfulness rather than our unfaithfulness when we do doubt and we do fail to trust. But even greater than this as well, that's great enough, but he also gave us his spirit to dwell inside of us to grow that faith when we are having suffering. His spirit is the one that grows that trust and confidence in our hearts and helps us to trust God more and more in tough times as we grow along. So in this part, Christ is both the ultimate example of confidence through suffering, yet he's also the substance of our confidence when we go through suffering for two reasons. Both because Christ is the one who is, because of what Christ did, we can have confidence, and also because he is the one who is helping us to have more confidence internally through his spirit. David's lament in Psalm 13 helps us to see the process that a believer goes through in grief, from the seed to the flower. It also very clearly reveals Christ and his trials to us. David had confidence in God's steadfast love, but this love is more fully revealed in the gospel. It is because of God's loyal love to us that he chose, be that he chose before the foundation of the world that God the Father sent Christ into the world to suffer and die in our place so that we would never be fully abandoned by God as Christ was on the cross. So when the believer feels that God has abandoned him, God has not abandoned him completely, nor has he turned his face away from him as completely as he did with Christ on the cross. But even still, there is room for real sadness, I think, in the believer and real questions, but it's always from the posture of true faith. And even when the pain doesn't lighten and the suffering doesn't end, we can trust in God's love displayed for us by Christ dying on the cross in our place, and our heart can rejoice in the deliverance God will bring, if not now in this life from the pain, then eventually in death from the ultimate death. And we with David can sing to the Lord because of the fact that he has dealt bountifully with us, and he will continue to deal bountifully with us. It is important in our lamenting that we never simply yell at God and leave it at that. But when we express our grief before God, we must do it in faith and end with this note of confidence. And Jesus Christ's suffering allows us to do that. So when tragedy strikes, as with the terrible event that happened in Texas at the Robb Elementary School, or 
in more personal things, when we lose a loved one or we do get that terminal diagnosis or we do have family strife, we can grieve. But in our grief, we turn to God. We call out to God, expressing our deepest feelings and pray for him to look, to answer, and to lighten our eyes. However, we must know that though our flesh and eyes may tell us that God, it looks like God has abandoned us through faith, we know that he is faithful and trustworthy. And when the pain still doesn't stop, we do trust his good plan. The Psalms are there to help us. They're prayers and praises of psalmists dealing with different emotions and situations. And this prayer book is inspired by God, proper for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So when all hope seems lost, and you feel that God has abandoned you, and the enemy presses in all around you, this psalm is not only there to remind you how a believer can respond, but it is there to help you to respond. We as believers are able to pray Psalm 13, and it, when we don't have any other words that we know how to say, we can just read the psalm to God and express our feelings in that way. When we have no other words to say, we can pray with David, How long, O Lord? And it can be very edifying to the soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift that you've given us of the Holy Spirit to help us to have confidence, uh, even in the midst of suffering, and that you do have a good plan. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would come into us and help us to grow in faith when we're dealing with painful things. That the Holy Spirit would help us to grow from that seed of faith in asking why and how long to the prayer to ask you to change it. And also to even when the pain doesn't stop, being able to still pray and ask and say that, but even so, Lord, I trust in your good plan and I trust in your love that you have given and you have shown to me. Lord, we thank you for this gift of faith. And we ask that you would continue to grow it. In the most blessed name of Christ, we